Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Dr. Larry Ford with us here today, who is the founder and CEO of Hands to Guide You. Established in November 2011, Hands to Guide You is an integrated behavioral healthcare practice located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Led by Dr. Larry Ford, Doctor of Behavioral Health and Licensed Behavioral Health Professional, whose mission and focus is to improve the way the world experiences healthcare and is passionate about helping patients realize their full potential by successfully treating and resolving behavioral health deficiencies. Dr. Ford treats patients from diverse backgrounds in all walks of life, including boys and girls as young as four to five to seniors. The Ford philosophy is a whole person care begins with mental health. Without mental health, there is no health. Research has shown that the mind and body are connected. When a person feels sad and blue, it can impact their energy level, motivation to participate in treatment and negatively impact outcomes such as improving independent functioning. To achieve achieve desired outcomes, it is essential to support the patient's emotional health as well as their physical health. Dr. Ford is devoted to his patients and committed to delivering integrated care. Dr. Ford, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jesse. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing really well. And I, uh, my, my cheeks are still sore from us laughing before we got on here. <laughs> so, you, know, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you about this because I, you and I have chatted a few times now. And one of the things I've, I expressed concern to you was is my you know, thing that kind of keeps me up at night is what is the mental health fallout of what we're seeing with COVID going to be and how is that going to affect populations for right now and in the immediate future to come. And I think I was sharing with you that part of what motivated me to start this series was to try to have you know, push content and information resources out there to help people navigate through this time. So one, I want to just acknowledge that it's really incredible to see someone like yourself who's tackling the behavioral health and looking at wellness as this integrated piece, not one or the other, but really the system as a whole. And I'm just hoping maybe we can start off, Dr. Ford, by talking about a brief overview of what the experience of the last, we're recording this now almost the end of September, beginning of October, what the experience for you in your field has been like through this COVID time the last several months? Well, it's been a very challenging time, not just for myself, but uh, many providers throughout the country, throughout the world to be um, exact, but it's been a very challenging time and we've had to make a lot of changes as it relates to, you know, keeping ourselves safe and keeping all our patients safe and just being able to still provide a high quality service in the community. So it's been very challenging, um, but we've been able to manage and and come up with good solutions to um, continue to keep our doors open. What do you find has been most effective with that in helping keep the doors open and allowing patients to come in? And I imagine too, most importantly, patients coming in, but patients also feeling safe when they come in. Yeah, so we've just had to, we've stuck with the CDC guidelines. We've made um, a lot of changes, you know, we now use what's a a platform called GoSafe to where it it takes, it's a, essentially a program to where it takes their temperature and it scans their face and looks for um, 
deficiencies to see if maybe they could be sick or getting sick or anything like that. And it takes their temperature in real time and that helps. And then we stick with the CDC guidelines. But for the most part, patients want to know that when they come to our office, that they're going to be safe and remain safe and they're not going to be at risk. The other part of that is telehealth. Telehealth is a, is a medical version of FaceTime. Uh, for the most part with a different platform. But we were doing that before um, COVID happened, but that's something that has also increased um, when it presents. And this gave us the, another opportunity to improve care and improve access to care as well. You find with- so We've had to make two different um, sets of changes for in office. And then if they're not able to come into the office or they don't want to come into the office, we also allow them the right to use telehealth. How do you find t people respond to telehealth? Because I would imagine, especially with folks who are, who are struggling with the, the mental emotional piece, that maybe that would invite an additional level of safety and comfort for them to be able to essentially phone in from their home and have an environment that they feel some sort of control or some sort of uh, familiarity with to be able to open up and, and chat about those things? Uh, well, yeah, so I, due to the situation in which uh, has happened, I think that has made telehealth a lot easier because people want to be seen. People want to see their providers and they want their treatment. So doing telehealth from that standpoint has made it a lot more um, easier and a lot more receptive. They've been a lot more receptive for the population that wasn't doing telehealth before. And we also had a, a population that was doing telehealth before all of this started and they were, you know, it was a seamless transition. Occasionally they would come into the office um, maybe once or twice a month, but for the most part their visits may be on telehealth and then it, it switched to 100% on telehealth. That process was a lot um, different, a lot more seamless. Yeah. You, in reading your bio, you work with people as young as four to five years old to the senior population. And I'm wondering if yes. there are some common themes that you're seeing playing out in those areas. Are there common themes of what specifically people are struggling with throughout all this? Yes, I would say depression. Our depression rates have increased. And then um, for the uh, adolescent, the, the adolescent population, I would say suicide, suicidal thoughts, you know, because of the one of the, this is for a lot of uh, kids this age from the ages of eight to say 17, this is the first time in their life where they've been so isolated, where they don't have as much interaction with their friends. Um, they don't have, they didn't have school. Now they have virtual learning. Virtual learning hasn't been, I wouldn't consider it a success at this point in where we are um, in our state and this puts a lot of stressors on the child. And then that's not even to consider, to take into consideration that child's home life. We also live in a state that's high in trauma, traumatic events to uh, the childhood population. So then you add that on and now the child is feeling hopeless or lonely or feeling like they have nobody. So, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of things going on. Yeah, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but pre-COVID, wasn't suicide the number three cause of death for teenagers and younger in the U.S. prior yeah, to Yeah, number two, number two, and that rate is steadily going up. The rates have increased since then. Currently, still, it was number two, but now the rates have increased so much more, um, only behind accidents. <clears throat> yeah, huge problem.
And suicide is the is like number nine leading cause of death in our state, in the state of Oklahoma, for the for adults. So wow. it's a big problem in our state. And I think is it is it top ten for the U.S. as a whole, or is it? Yes, yes, it's still okay. top ten. So we have we have this we have suicide right now, number two for kids, top ten as a whole for adult population. Yes, you're seeing an increase with it. So you guys are able to help help support people through that. And I'm curious for people who are listening and watching right now, and maybe we can take this on two paths. Number one, for those of us who might be concerned of loved ones, you know, for concern for their safety, are there some signs that we should be looking for to identify? And then maybe number two with that, if we could expand on it, what are some ways that we can support people who we may be seeing them having signs or symptoms of suicide? Well, first one is isolation. Signs of isolation, moves, changing, not answering calls, not interacting with people as they would in the past. And then I'm going to jump to number two because you really answered it in support. You know, um, in our, you know, we're a little older, but it's a saying that it takes a village to raise a child. And I also say it takes that same village to keep that child who may be an adult now healthy. So mm-hmm. support is a big key. Uh, we have a video on our site um, that's titled You're Not Alone. And it just goes over some statistics on, on not being alone and how you're not alone with your mental health and the issues or problems that you may be facing or that are challenging you to this day. So support is definitely, the more support you have, the more, um, you're, the better off you're going to be because it's all about a connection. We as humans have to have healthy connections in life. And the more healthy connections we have, the, the healthier that we are. How can we start to foster and form those connections with the people that we care about? And I, you know, and my, my reason for asking is I've heard the story so many times of, I didn't even realize they were struggling as bad as they were. I didn't know how to reach out. I didn't know how to engage with it. How, how can we begin to make that connection with it where, gosh, and I don't even know if this is the right term where we can almost normalize those kinds of conversations, but we can, we cannot have it be that elephant in the room where we sense something's wrong, but we're not talking about it. Well, I think we have to, um, like what was you were saying kind of in my bio, I mean, we have to add, we have to combine the head back with the body. And for generations, we've separated the mind and the body and kind of separated and isolated them. We have to uh, form a marriage again with the mind and the body. And then I also think that it starts at childhood early on you know years ago many years ago we implemented physical education into the school systems into the education system and i think it's now is a very detrimental time and a very important time for all um, not only children but adults and i think it's time for us to add mental health um, to the school curriculum so we can learn about coping skills so we can learn about depression so the children can learn about anxiety i mean for the most part, we do. They do a lot of physical education, and they learn about the body, the human body. But we leave the brain out, and now we have to we have to look at a new curriculum and look at a new plan that's going to help um, our community. Because if we do that, I believe now when a child has feelings or moods or not feeling their self, they know um, that this is something that is possible for them to go to, and not only go through, but to to fix and to, to acquire some skills that can get them to the next step of their life. I'm curious, Dr. Ford, if you're seeing any sort of evolution in, in gender with suicidal expression tendencies. And I ask this because 
I, so I do some mentorship with uh, men who have been widowed, their wives have passed away, or their partners have passed away. And mm -hmm. in that population, a widower is three times more likely to lose their life by suicide than their yes. female counterparts. Right. And I think a lot of this research suggests that that goes to the stereotypical way of males being raised, you know, suck it up, big boys don't cry, bury our feelings. And then all of a sudden they go through this, this massive life transition and they're left with all those feelings. They don't know what to do. Yes. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that trend play out still in adolescence where is there more uh, young men that are being more vulnerable to it or more young women, or is it started to maybe in the modern world, or is it being becoming more open and acceptable for, for young boys to start to express their feelings or emotions and what's going on? I would say right now, I mean, we see a, a, a lot of patients each month, but right now, really, and I have to look at the numbers to get an exact uh, number, but it's been pretty even with, with young men, young boys, and young girls. I mean, this has been an extremely trying time for, for, for everyone, you know, everyone. So I would have to say it's, it's been pretty even. I know with, you know, I've seen a, uh, many of young boys and then many of young girls with the same thoughts, and it's all due to um, the things that we're fa currently facing. And then adding um, home life and everything that goes along with home life and being isolation, isolated and not having those strong, healthy connections in life. And that, you know, we're talking about a child, say an eight-year-old, well, that eight-year-old has never been nine, 10, 11, 15 or 18 or any of those ages. So it's safe to say they're facing something that they've never never faced in life and without healthy connections or a healthy source to talk to and communicate and, and, and talk to, they're, they're left alone and, and left with those feelings of isolation and feeling trapped and, you know, everything that goes along with that. When I think when you and I first met, you were sharing with me that you've had more people reaching out now and you guys are act actively installing more lines to make yourselves more available so patients can connect. Yes. And yes. I remember thinking that's incredible that so many more people are willing to reach out. And then I also thought, gosh, if that many more people are reaching out, how many people are not reaching out because of maybe the shame or the guilt or whatever it is they're feeling with it. So I guess this question has two parts. Part one is, is there a common theme or trend that usually keeps us from reaching out? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Is it this feeling that I should be able to figure out myself? And then part two of that would be for those of us who might, how, how does one begin to find the courage or work through that, that piece to be able to reach out and ask for help? Yes, part one, um, that ties into a lot of, like you were saying earlier, old traditional belief systems. The man is, is strong, powerful, you know, um, doesn't need help, can manage anything, I can make it through anything. And now, you know, with everything that's going on, even before this year, now they're realizing that, you know, I need to talk to somebody, but I think a lot of what's helping that now you have a lot of, a lot more people that are coming out. Um, it's been a lot of celebrities that have come out recently and talked about their mental health struggles and people I'll say I, 
celebrities, but more people that are readily available in front of the cameras. More people that we see in front of the cameras and the movies are coming out more and really discussing and talking about their mental health. And I think that's something that has opened the doors um, to more people coming out. And also some of the, you know, it's more and more TV shows and more and more movies where they're talking and discussing mental health. And I think that's um, been key in getting to where you said earlier, that normalization, because at some point we have to have normalization. We're not there yet, but I do believe that we're making um, advances at it. <clears throat> what do you think is the step is it, is it education? Is it having it be education? I know you referred to that in school. Is it something that in family dynamics could we have, would it be having, you know, if we had the, the traditional dinner table conversation of, of checking in and asking how we're feeling, what have we been thinking about? What's been on our mind? Is it, is it an evolution in that sense? Because when I stereotype the typical family dinner, it's the, how was your day? What did you do? you know, we don't, there, there's a lot of surface stuff. It doesn't really go, yeah. to, you know, to that depth of it, but it's, it's, it often seems like it's the, 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 the stuff that is really on our minds and hearts is that one or two layers deeper, but we're so used to the, oh, how is your day? You know, it's that grocery store interaction when you're in line at the grocery store and the clerk asks you, how's your day? And you say, good. And then you ask them, how's their day? And you say, good. And somebody in there, isn't necessarily good, but we're just saying that response mm -hmm. because that's kind of what's expected us in that moment. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. That's a, a very good point. We have to get back to um, those more intimate conversations and checking on our children and family members and, you know, with society, everything's growing and technology's growing, but in a sense, it's isolated ourselves and, 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 and made us more into our own thing versus checking on others. We have a lot more resources and a lot more options, you know, and sometimes in those options, families and friends get, get negated. I, I talk with a lot of parents and, and these are really like good hearted, want to serve their children, want to be better parents. And it's amazing on how many of them will say the same thing. I want to better connect with my kids, but I can't compete with this. I can't yeah. compete with the phone. And they, they talk about doing this delicate dance of trying to guide them away from the phone. But then when they do so, if they do it the wrong way, they get in that dynamic of, well, you're just keeping me from my friends. You're keeping me from this. You don't understand. And I'm wondering, do you see technology and the maybe sometimes the dependency we form on it as being a challenge for the younger population? And if so, how can parents begin to you know, navigate those discussions to be able to separate the technology to have those more intimate conversations at home? Yeah, well, I think screen time, boundaries with screen time are very, very important, especially for, for children, um, because we got to remember, you know, those children's brains are still being developed and, and screen time can affect the neural development of that. But for us in the clinic, because that is something that we face. So what, one of the things that we have done is we have went to utilizing more, more apps. There's because uh, most people nowadays have smartphones, right? So smartphones have uh, enormous capability and we've started to use some of that capability with positive affirmation apps. We've utilized the, the Calm app. It's an app for positive affirmations that's um, um, called 
called I am. And we utilize, we use so headspace. We utilize so many more apps that are available for not only adults, but children also. So if you're gonna, if you're suffering with these conditions and you're gonna use your phone, then let's use some of this screen time or let's use some of your time on your phone to help you get better. I love that. And then you can even build maybe a ritual around it where it's family headspace time or something. Yeah, like that, right? exactly. Exactly. Family calm time. Every day at this time, we'll all get together as family and do our daily calm and check in with our mood. Calm is, is great about that. Every day you can check your mood and how you're feeling. And I have the families and the parents, you know, do check-ins at the end of the day and summarize at the end of the week. How's everybody's mood been for the week and the overall mood and what can we got, what can we do collectively as a family to make it better? I, I'm just curious, just, just for a frame of reference, what kind of I imagine you see a substantial shift in mood. If, it, if we use like a scale of one to 10 with one being really bad and 10 being really great, if somebody comes in and they're at like a two or a three, they start doing things like that. Where, where might they jump to by the end of the week? Is it, do they go up to a five, a seven? And I think that I only ask that because I think it's really important for people to hear that oftentimes in improving mental health, it can be a series of doing small little things and adding them up and they can make these massive differences. Because I, I feel like sometimes people think that you have to do so much stuff and it's such this big thing, right? And, yeah. and when I hear you say utilizing an app like Headspace, it's not this big thing, but those, those small things can really make these big differences, right? Yeah, small steps, big gains. That's what I always tell. Small steps, big gains. Very, very small steps end up and in, turns into big gains. And yes, you're exactly right. So, you know, and a lot of it is because before they come in, they're doing all these things that are unhealthy for their minds and their thoughts. And then they leave with an insight on what they can do to better improve themselves. Like for instance, negative thoughts. Well, if you have a majority of negative thoughts, then you have positive thoughts, then that makes for negative days. You don't have negative thoughts on good days. You don't have positive thoughts on bad days. So it's about a balance, but acknowledging what you're having the most of and then acknowledging it when you leave and utilizing some of the apps and some and just really enhancing the tools that they have and equip, equipping them with tools to improve their health. But a lot of times we do see big, big jumps and big gains because they don't understand or realize some of the small things that they're doing are causing significant impacts in their life. But also changing that and now doing some of these small things still have a big impact on their life. Mm. You mentioned negative thoughts, Dr. Ford, and I, I read a, a study one time and I I, gosh, please correct me if I'm way off on this, but I feel, I, if I'm recalling correctly, it said the average human being thinks anywhere from, of all the thoughts they think every day, anywhere from 65 to 80% of those thoughts might be quote unquote negative. Yes. Right. So if we have the overwhelming majority of it are negative, I'm wondering if there's a quick tip or something that somebody who's listening, watching us right now, they catch themselves like, oh my gosh, there's there's a negative thought that pops up that they could do in real time right now to be able to start to address that or navigate with and improve it. Yes, the, the first thing, the quickest thing is to replace those thoughts with positive thoughts. You never want to feed something you don't want to grow. And if you look at your brain as a 
enormous garden. What do you want? You want fruits and vegetables. You don't want a lot of weeds. And if you look at the negative thoughts as weeds, you wouldn't spend hours upon hours in, in your garden feeding and watering these, these weeds or negative thoughts. So one, you don't want to feed negative thoughts. You want to replace those thoughts with, with positive thoughts. And then two, it's a four-step questionnaire that I always give. Um, when you have a negative thought, first you ask yourself, is it true? Yes or no? Number two is, how do you feel when you have that thought? Who would you be um, mm -hmm. without that thought? And then how would you feel without that thought? And then just ask those questions to yourself. Is it true? How do you feel when you have that thought? Who, do you, who would you be without that thought? And what would make it better? Four core questions that we always go over. God, I love that question. Who would you be without that thought? Yes. I can imagine that brings forth some really powerful insights for people with that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, see, that's, and that's another, Jesse, that's another example of like we were saying earlier, it's the small thing, small thing, yeah. some, something as small as four simple questions to go over with yourself. With, you know, you don't even need anybody else. You can be alone in a room, you know, but those four little questions by yourself can make a dramatic impact on your life. And then simply replacing those thoughts with positive thoughts. The more positive thoughts you have, the more, the better your day, the possibility of your day is being. Hmm. I love it. Dr. Ford, before I ask my final question, where can people find and connect with you online? Okay, so our website, we have a website. Our website is h2, the numeric 2, gy.com. You can find us on Facebook at Hands to Guide You, um, Instagram at Hands to Guide You, and at Twitter at h, the numeric 2, g-y-i-n-c. Cool. We'll make sure all that's in the show notes and everything too and on the links and you'll be able to see it so everybody can connect and come check out what you guys are all doing. Okay, thank you so much. Absolutely. So somebody who's, who's listening and watching right now, you know, I think thematically I've heard over and over again, people mentioning and talking about self-care. Gosh, I don't know if a day goes by where I'm not engaging in conversations around self-care with people. Very important. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you have some go-to self-care tips or strategies that people should be doing that if they're coming away from this and they're, they do one or two key things to start really addressing self-care in their life that aren't super time consuming what would that be so that people can really start to lean into that self-care piece? First, I want to go over a little bit about self-care. And this is how I explain self-care because I get this asked this question all the time, especially now during what we're going through. Self-care is something that adds to you. When you talk about self-care, you want to talk about your mental health, your emotional health, and your physical health. And keep in mind, I said self-care is something that adds to you. Mm -hmm. So what can you do that's going to add to your mental health, that's going to add to your emotional health, and it's going to add to your physical health? Your self-care activity should never take away from you. You should never um, leave feeling drained or bad or, or just empty after doing self-care. Um, so self-care is anything that's going to add to you. And keep in mind, when you're talking about self-care, you want to talk about mental health, emotional health, and physical health. I'll just go over for me. For me, it's, you know, I enjoy going to the gym. I still have a group of buddies that I uh, play competitive basketball with, and we spend a lot of gym time when possible and going to the gym, um, walking, 
you know, I'm a big walker. Used to be a runner years ago, but now it's more uh, fast-paced walking. But anything that's going to add to you where you get that relief and it, and it really resets you. Because if, you know, we put so much emphasis on our phones and, you know, as soon as our batteries on our phone get to 10% or less, we look for the nearest source to charge it up. And we know exactly when our, our phone is fully charged. But and we know that our, our body, our self, is way more important than a phone, but yet we charge our phones up every day and we never charge ourselves up. Self-care is the way that we charge ourselves up and allow us to keep going to the very next day, to the next event that we have. Everyone, boy, is this one you're gonna to wanna to rewatch and re-listen to. With the depression, suicidal thoughts being at new highs because of faults from COVID, people struggling with mental health. I think Dr. Ford gave us a really fascinating insight into what his daily practice is, but also giving us some really incredible tangible tools that not only can we apply to ourselves, but how we can, we can begin to open up discussions with our loved ones, our friends, our family, our children, our, our brothers or sisters about how we can begin to integrate these things. Looking at how we can have conversations about it, identifying that if we see somebody being a little bit more isolated, staying more to themselves, not responding phone calls, you know, doing not engaging in the normal habits and behaviors that it might be someone that we can reach out to, have that discussion more. He talked about bridging the gap with technology if your parents about making boundaries with screen time so that you're able to have clear and understandable boundaries with your kids and you're not having to do that wrestling match or trying to get them off it so you can sit down and have the conversation. Speaking of having the conversation, we talked about those dinner table conversations and bringing back intimate discussion and, and allowing ourselves to go a little bit deeper, not just settle for how we're doing or what the day was like, but how we're thinking, how we're feeling. Dr. Ford mentioned apps using technology to our advantage like Headspace and maybe even making it a ritual where it just seeing it's small things over time make big gains over time. And so having daily rituals where maybe you and your family or your friends do a headspace. And if you're in that isolated place still, like many of us in California, we still have a few more restrictions than some of the other US. You could even do a virtual headspace thing on Zoom where each of you are on it. And just think about how you can always bridge those gaps where you're doing those self-care processes, which I love the definition of self-care, something that adds to you. Looking at those ways you can add to it. He mentioned the, the, how it, we're either watering, we wanna grow fruits and vegetables in our mind and our being, or grow weeds. And so often, so much of the stuff, the content we're consuming is weeds, 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 weeds. And so really being mindful with it and recognizing it. I love the question, who would I be without that thought? Who would I be without that thought? I am gonna think about that all day today. And maybe that's something that we could all engage in the comments because all of us likely have a thought or two that is a, recurring thought pattern that pops up and ask yourself, who would you be without that thought? I mean, just hearing that it's so incredibly empowering for me because then it, it opens up the question of, gosh, if I could be that without that one thought, what else could I be without the next thought after that? And that to me is just, it's, it's such a broad brush that we could paint professionally, personally, relationally, health-wise, everything else. Who could you be without some of the thoughts that are holding you back? What is your self-care routine? What can you do to add more to your life? And having those conversations, going a little deeper with those that you love and making sure that you're checking in and it's, it's okay, you know, getting past that, that old way of being of toughen up and stiff upper lip and, and getting down to the feelings where in looking at the whole system, the mind and the heart. 
as well as the body. Dr. Ford, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for sharing so generous, generously with us today. I certainly appreciate you. This has been such a gift for us all. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to